Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation, part three of our conversation with legendary APAC marketer and thought leader, Dave McCoggan. Dave has spent the last three decades in the Asia Pacific in senior management roles with McCann, one of the world's biggest advertising agencies. He joined McCann in 1986 in his native Sydney, where he built the strategic planning function, and since 1995 has been based in Bangkok, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, leading regional strategy and communications campaign development for clients like Coca-Cola. Cola, MasterCard, Nestle, Cathay Pacific, Sunstar, Hitachi, Johnson & Johnson, and many others. In 2015, Dave launched Bibliosexual, which works with brands to bring together his long-term passion for understanding the relationship between form and content. In this episode, we conclude our extensive discussion by talking about Dave's time at Coca-Cola, how he got ads approved in the Chinese market, and specifically, the first ever romantic kiss seen on Chinese television. We also talk about how brands should approach countries in Southeast Asia, which are all different from one another, and we see major nuances inside each country. We finish our conversation by diving deep into AI technology. Is it going to disrupt the marketing world? Enjoy. If you're marketing to people on the basis that you understand what they're about, you can't have foreigners. And they are very distinctly different countries. We have very Muslim countries uh, like Indonesia, Malaysia, for example. We have very strong Buddhist countries like here in Thailand. We have a place like Vietnam, which is very different again. So you have those very big ethnic differences, religious differences, historically cultural differences. Remember, some are fr coming from a French colonial base, some Indonesia from a, a different colonial base. Then you've got the British colonial bases. That's the nature of the different countries. And you've just got to understand those, those real differences. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. I'm here again with Dave McCoggan. He is the founder and storyteller of Bibliosexual. And if you are really curious as to where that name come from, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode one or maybe episode two. Uh, and uh, we get into where that name come from. But, but Dave, thanks again for coming back and doing this cleanup episode. Thanks very much for having me back. It's great. It's always good when somebody wants to talk to me some more. You know, that's a nice change. Know. You know, that's right. Could you could you come over here and go next door and talk to my wife because she just tells me to shut up? Well, all the time. you so, know, yeah. and that's why we're here. I'm not going to say we're high by your wife. I'm not going to say we aren't. But you know, <laughs> we're here to distract you and take you away from what you should have been doing. Um, and we're going to clean things up. We 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 covered a lot of topics. Okay, so from a high level. 
um, you know, you've you've been in Asia for a very long time, right? And, and worked with a lot of brands like Coca-Cola and MasterCard, Nestle, Cafe Pacific, all of these things. Um, uh, you, you've lived in different areas, you know, Hong Kong and, you know, in Bangkok, Thailand. We already, you know, covered that. Um, we talked a lot about the different brands that you've worked with. Um, we've talked about... You, you know, we everything everything from from toilets uh, to Japan and and consumers and the youth and silver technology or silver the silver cohort of of, of consumers, and we're going to kind of come back. And I just wanted to dive into so many things because I just felt like we left so much meat on the bone here. So there was a lot of things that we wanted to talk to you about. And so forgive us, folks. We're going to bounce around. I'm going to try to give you context and I'll do my best to catch you up. If this is the only episode of the three that we have with Dave, I will do my best. Okay. My promise to you, but no promises other than that promise. Uh, So I will probably break it. So I want to go back and first of all, talk about, I don't know if we leaned in on this enough, but um, I want to talk about Coca-Cola. So first of all, where were you in the world what were the years? How long were you with Coca-Cola? Oh, so I was working for the uh, for McCann, the ad agency that handled Coke. First in Australia, uh, I spent um, nine years in Australia, and Coke was our biggest client uh, down there. Then I moved to Asia, and the main reason I moved to Asia was actually to work on Coca-Cola in a region that involves Southeast Asia and West Asia, so Southeast Asia and India, basically, right? And uh, their headquarters for that region was here in Bangkok. So that's that's why I first ended up here. Um, in typical, as, as you probably know, Todd, when you get sent by an, a, a big Western company to go somewhere like Asia, they say, just go there just for two years, and then it stays on and on and on, right? Um, so I, I, I did Coca-Cola for Southeast Asia and India for about five or six years. Um, I then, for various reasons, transferred to Hong Kong, but it, the, the main reason for doing that was um, us being assigned to handle the Coca-Cola business for uh, Greater China, so Hong Kong, Taiwan, and, and the mainland, PRC, and um, particularly PRC, where this was new ground for our agency and Coca-Cola trying to do something moving on to the next stage. Uh, and so that was really um, big. Uh, spent four years doing that, um, doing some pretty interesting work in terms of advertising. I think I mentioned in, in the earlier sessions that, you know, we, we made the first, we were the first Western brand to ever do a commercial specifically for Chinese New Year. Um, and so that was a big breakthrough. Um, to this day, they still use the characters that we developed for that campaign back in 2002 um, as the main uh, sort of celebratory characters. Um, but we also did, and this was really significant. We made a we made a Coca Cola commercial in China. That it, without going into the whole storyline, what was significant about it was um, that it was a boy boy meets girl sort of thing, and da da da, crowded crowded underground train platform. You you know Shanghai really well. You know that massively crowded underground, and and the point is that they sort of uh, proclaim their love to each other on the platform and they kiss. And this was the first kiss ever on Chinese television. Um, and so you can imagine we had to go through all sorts of legalese. And it was just literally like 
like that. It was nothing, no tongue, nothing like that. It was just a peck, but just to get the peck in. So we did that. And then after that, I moved to Japan and there I worked on Coca-Cola in Japan for about another seven years. So, you know, a long time, 25 years altogether across different countries. I need to sidebar on this question um, just about, and I, and I think a lot of brand owners that might be listening would want to maybe key in on this as well. So the kiss and, yeah. and, and what you went through to get that approved um, for, for distribution. Yeah. Did you, did you know you needed to do this? Did you get it done ahead of time or was it, you know, uh, rather ask for forgiveness instead of permission? We knew this would be a big deal. We knew this would be from the first time that we sat in our office and somebody threw up this draft, you know, this rough idea for, for a script, which had to culminate, you know, you know, if from a Western point of view, we would take, take it for granted. And I was, there was two Westerners in the team, myself and, and, and a Canadian who was the creative director. And we just knew straight, no, it's got to end in a kiss. But then first reaction in the room from all our colleagues was, oh, shit, we've never seen a kiss on, on, on a screen, right? It just doesn't happen, right? And that led to directly to as when we first presented the idea to the client, we had to say, you know, and the, we, we had to present to the client and then say to them, look, and we're going to have to do this, this and this, right, because this is going to be a big deal. And this is one of those things that, now, and the, and the clients, by the way, there were a lot of, there was, um, the, the main client was a Hong Kong uh, guy from Hong Kong, but, you know, had worked in the mainland for a long time, et cetera. The core of the clients group were mainland PRC Chinese. Um, but, you know, you've got an, a big American company, a Coca-Cola, an icon global company. And, of course, at some point this has to go back to Atlanta uh, as well, you know that this is going to be the number one. This is going to be number one commercial for the new season. They've got to have it exposed. Now, it, again, you can imagine if, in some ways, if you were presenting this idea back to a head office back in North America, literally as a script, everybody would go, "Looks a bit like the 1950s, right?" Um, and, and what's the big deal? And you go, "No, but you've got to understand, this is not. This is a big deal." And the fact that we had to get special permission and tell them that at the first presentation made it a big deal and made everybody aware of the fact that, well, we're, we're risk takers here. It's not a risk taker by American, North American standards, Western standards at all. But in the marketplace, and this is one of those things that when you're working internationally and working in Asia, sometimes you've got to realise that what you're doing on the market, in the market whether it's in China or, or, or in India or here in Thailand or whatever, what you're doing here may seem uh, a little old-fashioned or it may seem been there, done that, but it's the first time ever in this marketplace. Um, and and what I think one of the things that many business people, particularly in the marketing world, they tend to get exposed to global standard. Right. And so we're, we're always looking, you know, in, in the in the marketing advertising world, you're always looking at things like the Cannes Award Festivals and the Reels and going, oh, that's great. We've got to do that. Got to do that. And you've got to remember, no, no, what's breakthrough for the market you're in? Right. What's what's really different for the market you're in and how risky is that or how innovative is that? Or will people actually, you know, the, there are things that we take for granted maybe as Westerners uh, that a normal practice that in other cultures are very extreme. And, and by the way, vice versa, right? 
Um, you know, as we record this, yesterday was the World Cup final, and I don't know if you watched or followed it yourself, but you know at the end where um, the Emir of, of, of Gata put that special little cloak thing on, on Messi, right? The controversy about that in the last 20 has been, there's been more controversy about that than the game, right? And about what is that? And when you actually know and understand that actually it's just an extreme privilege, right, within that culture for somebody to be asked to wear that thing, right, it's very different from maybe some of the other interpretations that are floating around because people want to take a black and white and attitude to cultural things, right? Anything that was going to happen that was even infinitesimally unique was going to be just blown right out of proportion out regardless because yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. the microscope exactly. that exactly. that entire event is under. So that was the thing. That was the yeah. thing. Um, yeah. I want to ask about uh, the, the demographics. I wanted to ask, uh, so, you know, you're, you're doing the kiss ad in, in, in China um, uh, you know, do you take into consideration? I've been all over China, um, and I've seen all the different tier one to tier six um, types of of of, uh, of of areas of the country. Are you taking those into consideration? And 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 more to the point, I even wanted to get to like like all your time in Japan. And for those who missed it, go back listen to that uh, lengthy lengthy conversations talking about Japan. Like how different are consumers in Tokyo? versus other parts of the country, but then expand that to the other countries that you've lived in where they've had this disparate demographic. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Well, look, you know, look, look, you know, where you guys are, right? Look at the difference between uh, Manitoba and, and Toronto, right? Or, you know, um, outback Kansas or the, the middle of Kansas and, and, and New York, right? I mean, you know, there's obviously and the, the culture debates that go on in North America. To non-Americans, to non-North Americans are insane, right? Because outside of, of the Americas, we all look at what's going on there and sort of go, the, the differences are infinitesimal, right? But when you get into a place like China, obviously, as, as you know from all your experience, you have the huge differences between – the tier one cities, the, the, the famously tier one cities, um, uh, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, uh, et cetera, right? And, and then the, the tier two, tier three cities, right? Now, the tier two cities have caught up a lot in the last 15 years uh, and are a lot more sophisticated and a lot more uh, exposed to global things than they were. And so if you walk into what is now still called a tier two city, um, I know you lived in Dalian for a while, right? So, um, you know, you walk into the, the centre of Dalian today and you're going to see Uniqlo stores, right, from Japan. You're going to see, you know, all, all those sorts of things going on. But, of course, there is a big difference. And then once you go into the countryside, there's a huge difference, right, because it is literally um, very different in terms of uh, expectation, the way people live day to day, uh, as we were talking about off air, you know, simple things like the way in which buildings are heated, you know, uh, the availability of services, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in, in a China, that's still um, pretty extreme. You can go to other places in Asia where it's going to be even more extreme. And so, you know, Indonesia, for example, the difference between what you can do, what you can access, the attitudes that go on in, in Jakarta uh, and then 
way out in, you know, uh, villages in Borneo, for example, um, is it can be very, very different. But, of course, what you've got to take on board too is what's happened in the last, in my 25 years of living in Asia, right? When I first moved to Asia in the mid-'90s, um, yes, of course, the internet was starting to get everywhere, but accessing the internet outside of the big cities was often extremely difficult, right? There wasn't Wi-Fi. It, it didn't exist. Um, your phone could not could not do this sort of stuff. And, of course, the what we've now, of course, of course seen is, you know, since 2008, the smartphones have sort of penetrated a lot more places. You know, Wi-Fi has penetrated a lot more places. So now you can go to a village um, and you're going to find, you know, a, a kid sitting on the, on the front step of his, of his hut in the village and he's sitting there, on, you know, playing games online with somebody who he doesn't know where they are. They could be anywhere in the world, right? Um, so th- there has been that shift. But there are still big, big differences. Um, look, you said mentioned Japan, right? It, all you got to do is look at the difference between Tokyo and, and Osaka. You know, the two biggest cities. Um, Osaka, by any standards, a, a massive city on the world stage. It's you know, in in Japan, you know, it's little Osaka. It's only fifteen million people. Um, and, the little brother. Um, it's little brother, but it, in the same way that we famously have the sort of New York, LA sort of like rivalry and, and that sort of stuff. Well, then you have that in Japan and you have a very different heritage. You have a very different, um, uh, the slang is different. The accent is different. Um, the attitude to each other is different. The attitude to, but the attitude to things like drinking, food um, changes dramatically. You know, what, what are acceptable habits? Um, between two big cities in the one very, very modernized country. Do brands really multiply that? Go ahead. Do they, yeah, do, do brands care about that and play some brands more than others? It depends again on your category, on what you're doing, right? So, of course, the simple term is that, you know, um, well, everybody all over the country wants to modernize and get, get what the latest thing is. That's probably true, but then it depends on what you're talking about, especially food, beverages, those sorts of things. Then you have to sometimes be a little bit uh, careful about, well, who's going to really want that, right? Who's going to want to feel that it's for them? One of the interest, most interesting campaigns of the last 20 years, uh, not just in Asia but globally, has been the way that, the Nestle company turned Kit Kat around the, you know, Kit Kat chocolate bars uh, in Japan. Yeah, and 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 one of the things that they did r- really uniquely was um, they developed lots of different flavors. Okay, so you could have there's the regular Kit Kat and the coffee flavor Kit Kat and the strawberry flavor Kit Kat, etc., etc., etc. But one of the things they did, I think, going back about 15 years or more, was um, for each region of Japan, there would be a different flavor. Kit Kat only sold in that region. Now, it became they became collector's items. So if you have the full range of all of these regional flavors in their pristine packs, it's a bit like collecting you know, uh, baseball cards or anything else. It becomes a, a collector's item. But what it was also doing was, was playing up to local pride. 
Now, people that didn't even like Kit Kat, that didn't even eat chocolate, would buy these things because it was our local thing, right, um, our local flavour. And it really highlighted the fact that while there's universal aspiration, you know, globally, and then there's there's aspiration to have what is seen as American, whether or not Americans would recognise it as such, or there's aspiration to have what is seen as French sophistication, whether or not a Parisian would think it was sophisticated. But there's also aspiration to um, what is the best, what's happening in the capital, right, what's happening in Tokyo or Beijing or Shanghai or, or, or Bangkok. But there's also then local aspiration, like identification. And, and the funny thing is, of course, that in a world where we in some ways because of media think the world is homogenizing and we often hear this thing about the world homogenizing but we forget that in that homogenizing process there's also been a a real inclination and desire for localization for you know but we're different and you notice that everywhere right you know uh, people are from you know van people from vancouver well we're not like toronto well we're totally different from toronto right um you know I'm going down to Sydney, you know, at the end of the week to spend Christmas, New Year down there. I've got to tell you, in Australia, Sydney and Melbourne, we hate each other's guts. You know? Um, oh, yeah. Beijing, <laughs> Shanghai, New York, LA. Like, yeah, Beijing, yeah. Shanghai, right, yeah. right, everywhere, right? But but think about it, too. It's it's that thing about, no, no, I'm from, you know, um, I'm from the country. So there is a role that brands have to play to sort of figure out what is the layering of this and how much do you go local? How And, of course, it's expensive to go local. It's oh, expensive, it is. right? So you've got to figure out how far how far down you need to go to get to a plateau where people are happy with it, right? I want to bounce over a bit to talking about Southeast Asia. You know, if you're doing China, you can just do China. You can create entire, you can spend all the money and the resources and time and, and have the whole department just do ads for China or Japan, you know, something like that. Those are pretty yeah. self-contained yeah. environments. Um, but when it comes to Southeast Asia, uh, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts because now we're talking Philippines and, and, and Thailand and, and, and Vietnam and, and some, some very size, obviously Indonesia, one of the biggest uh, in the world um, gets yeah. lumped in that with yeah. as well. Um Talk to us about maybe some of the differences in those regions. Are you, are brands ever trying to go into them as a whole? Do you need to talk them off of that and say you can't or you shouldn't or you can, but this is what you need to do different? Talk to us a little bit about that. For big Western brands, one of the traps in Southeast Asia, you're correct. Look, China is not... Uh, ethnically homogenous, right? Forty-seven dialects. The Chinese government might like to promote forty-seven dialects, but of course we know that basically the Han Chinese dominates the demography, dominates the discussion, and everything. And yes, it's very sad for some of the other ethnicities, etc. But the truth is that generally in China, you just use Han Chinese as your talent. You appeal to the Han Chinese, and that basically covers off most of the market, right? Uh, <clears throat> Southeast Asia is really complicated because, as you say, there's there's ten countries in in Southeast Asia. Um, there's a number of ethnicities. Um, there's a number of within countries. There's ethnicities. Malaysia is always a great example because 
there is the Malay ethnicity, but there is a large minority of Indian Malays who are third, fourth, fifth, sixth generations since their ancestors migrated uh, or first forced migration from India. You've got the Chinese Malay, which again is a large minority, um, which again quite often is five, six, seven generations since their ancestors came from somewhere in southern China. Um, and so even within that marketplace, you've got to you've got to look at the balance and you've got to think about, look, are we are we really just going after the Malay Malays or are we after going after Malaysia as a whole, right? Um, now you have a certain that to a certain extent everywhere across uh, Southeast Asia because you in you have, for example, Chinese minorities everywhere. Some quite small, but very rich minorities that may be um, not loved by the, the great majority of people, right? Um, so you've got to be careful about those. The other thing is that quite often, and I know I got trapped into the debate on this for a couple of big clients where, you know, well, we're going to do a Southeast Asia campaign. Yeah, okay. What does that mean? Oh, oh, sorry, no, no. You mean you want to make a single film, right, or video or, or whatever, or series of videos for the whole region? No, no, that's going to be really difficult. Why, why is that? We've just re- Well, who is going to be in it? Are you going to have Malays, Filipinos, Thais, uh, Indonesians? And guess what? You know, people from those countries can spot the difference very quickly and very easily. Um, And, of course, you do get circumstances. If I switch on my television here, um, you know, there will be advertising that I can tell it's Filipinos and it's being dubbed into Thai, right? And there's some things that that's fine for. Um, Very, very functional things it can sometimes be fine for. Very, very sometimes... um, I would say pseudoscience, like medical type products and stuff. That that sometimes could be fine for. But anything that's about lifestyle, uh, about personal ambition, about if you're marketing to people on the basis that you understand what they're about, you can't have foreigners, right? And the foreigner might be the person that's from that border, right? We're not talking about putting a German in it. We're talking about somebody, but that border represents, no, that's, that's different. That's not us. So they are very, and they are very distinctly different countries. We have, you know, the very Muslim countries uh, like Indonesia, um, you know, M- Malaysia, for example. We have very strong Buddhist countries like here in Thailand. We, you know, we have a place like Vietnam, which is very different again. We have, you know, a very, very ca- traditionally Catholic country, a uh, religious country like the Philippines. So you have those very big ethnic differences, religious differences, uh, historically cultural differences. Remember, some are fr- coming from a French colonial base, some Indonesia from a, a different colonial base. Then you've got the British colonial bases. Then you've got the fact that Thais love to brag that they ne- they've never been uh, conquered by anybody, right? Now, let's not get into historical realities, but that's, that's the nature of the different countries, and you've just got to understand those, those real differences. Plus, of course, plus of course, the other the other thing is Southeast Asia. You've got to remember economically, very very different development. You know, uh, Singapore sits right in the middle of Southeast Asia, but it's not really part of. It's a world of its own. You know, it's one, literally one of the most developed, sophisticated cities in the world. Um, you can't compare it 
it's unfair to compare it with other places, right? Because it just doesn't work that way. I want to ask about trying to do comedy as an underlying theme. Have you broached that? How well does that go? Is it hard? Is it easier? Yeah. How do you go with, if, if you're going to try to do something that's got some tongue in cheek, some, some fun, some comedy, how is it to do that in that part of the world? It's really hard if you're a, a dumb Aussie or a dumb Canadian, right? Um, and because, you know, the, the truth about comedy, right, is the universal truth about comedy is that it's always about making fun of other people. Every, every joke, no matter what it is, is actually about making fun of people, right? But how far you can go and how you do it, right, are very cultural-based. Simple example, right? So I know it's totally politically incorrect now, but, you know, I grew up in a world where growing up in Australia, my father was Irish, but the thing was everybody told Irish jokes, right? Now, today, maybe you can't, right? In America, I know there were some parts of America where it was Polish jokes, for example, or whatever, right? And we there was culturally throughout history, right, this is why the last maybe 10, 20 years are total anomaly of human history because throughout history, people have always told jokes about another country, another cultural group, right? And they do that in across Asia. Now, some of those don't yet don't make sense to us. Right, so as foreigners as Westerners, we go. Well, why, why, why do you think they're funny? I don't get it. Right, but there's that. But then there's the sense of day to day things, the nuances. Right, you know, think about a lot of the jokes, a lot of humour that you see in, for example, in advertising uh, in North America. Is a lot of the humour is based on people understanding some some cultural nuance that's going on. Right. Uh, because this star did this or because there's a string of movies about this or whatever. So you have to understand those. But the, the biggest issue, of course, is, is language. Um, if you think about great stand-up comedians that, that you would know in, in the West, right, you know that the really good stand-up comedians, it's all about the language and the timing of the way they tell it, right, uh, and, and the way that they can take little snippets of language, little things out of the slang of the of the land, and then the timing that's involved in it. And different comics are good at that. Well, e- even people that I know that have learnt the languages of the countries they lived in still can't get that timing sometimes, right? So humour is a really, really vital means of communication. But the thing is, you have to, as as a foreign company, you have to let your local partners uh, really take the lead in that. And you have to have the trust because quite often, and this is where I've had the, the issue of some some ads that, or some ideas that got howls of laughter in the room in Kuala Lumpur, but when it was presented to somebody in New York, they just sat dumbfounded like, I don't get it right, because the translation doesn't work. You just can't get it. And that's where you've got to start to understand and trust your local partners, that if they think it's really funny, then it's really funny. If I don't get the joke, it's just because I'm a dumb foreigner, right? Let me ask you something else about um, the big shopping festivals, right? You know, Singles Day and 618, and 1212, yeah. and obviously Chinese New Year uh, is a big, big one, is there? Yeah. Are those um, permeating? 
like a Black Friday might into a lot of other places. Are those starting to permeate yeah. into Southeast Asia? Does Southeast Asia have the have their own? And 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 what are they? And and are you kind of segmenting? You know, build, deploy, build, deploy to meet those types of events. Yeah, they they are. I mean, Black Friday is a good example, right? I mean, the insanity of uh, Black Friday sales going in some, uh, it, it, you know, and very, very highly urbanized, right? So these sorts of things are really about the big cities, right? It's not about the smaller towns and the smaller cities. It's the big cities and the big and the shopping and the shopping malls. And for for those of you that are listening to this that don't know Southeast Asia, the big cities here are dominated by the big shopping malls, big, big shopping malls, and that's the centre of attraction. Now, those big shopping malls are the centre of attraction for people for two main reasons. First of all, they have 365 days a year, 24 hours a day air conditioning, right? It's 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 a cool place to go because it's cool, as in temperature, and we often forget about that. And the big shopping mall developers understand that there's a large proportion of people who are in those malls not to shop at all, but just to stay cool, right? But to hang out. But the other side of it is that those those shopping malls are also magnets for what's happening in the world. It's the it's the visual essence of, you know, if I want to be a modern person then I go to a shopping mall to understand what is modern life, right? And in doing that, what we've seen then is the penetration of things like Black Friday or, as you say, like um, uh, 11-11, right, from, coming from China, etc. So these things are there. Quite often, though, what's interesting is when you say to people like, like Black Friday, from a North American perspective, you sort of understand, well, that's the day after, you know, that's after Halloween, blah, 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 blah. Now, Halloween has sort of been penetrating more and more in the big cities in Southeast Asia as well, but Black Friday in some ways is bigger than Halloween. So it's not necessarily connected, right? It's it's just, oh, it's Black Friday. Yes, let's go. It's big sales, right? 11.11 is the thing from China driven by uh, an increased awareness of what Chinese culture is all about. Now, Again, one of the things that you have to understand when you're marketing in this part of the world is the way in which cultural um, uh, soft power works in penetrating a market, right? So soft power uh, is where a country uses its cultural um, facilities to make an impact purposely, right? So, for example, um, Korea is probably the most famous example in the last 25, 30 years. The, the Korean government and the big chai bowls in Korea sat down in the early 90s and said, look, China, Japan did a fantastic job in the 60s, 70s and 80s of becoming a powerful source of brands by showing powerful cultural factors like Japan pop, like the manga and anime, right, that penetrated the culture across Southeast Asia. What the Koreans did was they purposely did this. They set out by telling the chai bowls that owned the TV stations and owned the music uh, production facilities in, in Korea, go and sell your product in all these Asian countries to make Korean stuff popular, 
so that then our brands could come in and do that. Now, what's happening in recent years is, for example, is more and more Chinese tourists have been pouring in, or pre-COVID, been pouring into Southeast Asia. But at the same time, what we started to see is the penetration of some more Chinese brands, uh, some more Chinese cultural factors, and things like 11.11, which even other, for example, online retailers have taken up uh, because people have sort of heard of this and there's a sort of like, oh, if it's really hot in China, what's that about? So you get a reinterpretation in local markets that really isn't driven by the same things as China. It's just, well, this thing is coming from China and China's pretty hot. So, you know, it must be pretty cool. So you're always looking for those sorts of things. And those big sale days quite often are, are part of establishing that we're part of the modern world. I mean, it, 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 May not seem that if you're a you know if you're a, a, a cynical older Aussie like me, but 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 that's the way in which people see this. It's like it's something to look forward to. It's a big event. It's a reason to go online. It's a reason to go to the mall and and see what's happening again, right? And people are driven by these events, yeah. right? They 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 love to have something like that to look forward to. Yeah, it's a reason they save their money for the month leading up to it. So they can spend more on the day. Exactly. Spend more on the day. I wanted to jump into the last kind of custodial uh, topic of, of this episode that I wanted to clean up, something I wanted to get to, and that was talking about AI. So does AI impact the way you're doing marketing now? Um, does the arrival of tools like the, the chat GPT, you know, do you think, um, you know, is that impacting what you do? Do you think AI is going to completely completely disrupt the world of marketing or is it just going to be uh, an extra tool in the toolbox? What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, it is, it is starting to, I mean, the chat, the chat GBT is sort of interesting because you can't open anything on screen in the last few weeks without people. Oh, I chucked this in there to see yeah. what's happening. Right. So, but I noticed that primarily as uh, an English speaking world thing at the moment. Right. So I'm not seeing a lot of discussion yet. Uh, where people are talking about, well, I did this in, in Thai or I did this in Japanese and, and, and let's see how that happens. But, but I'm sure it will, right? There's a fascination with AI. I've got to tell you, um, I, you know, I was the, the co-founder of a cooperative of uh, market researchers uh, across, a, and we called it AI.agency simply because if we say AI, people lean forward. Right. As soon as you say you go into a meeting, you say, "I want to talk to you about AI." Oh, what's that? You know, well, what is it? Kind of like you got? bibliosexual, right? Now, yeah, kind of, kind of like bibliosexual. It's the marketing yeah. game, right? You get you got to know what people want, right? What people want, they want the, the belief that AI is going to be the answer to all problems. Now, the truth is that AI is not the answer to all problems yet. That AI, there are some AI, or more important more correctly, some machine learning facilities that are helping to solve some problems, right, or are making things easier. And I guess it's a bit like, and in a crude example, uh, and again, Todd, I, I have no idea if you're old enough to remember life but what before spreadsheets. Life before spreadsheets. Before Excel and spreadsheets. Oh, no. Right? So we're looking, we're looking now at the, say, early 80s. Now, I'm old enough to remember getting to the workforce in the early 80s. And when Excel was first introduced, a bunch of people scratched their head and said, oh, it'll never take off, right? 
But a bunch of people sort of said, oh, yeah, why? Because it was a, it was a easier way to manipulate data, right, and to get automated answers. That's what it was, right? So if I plug in all this stuff, I can shuffle it around in different ways and then see what the, the number is that comes out at the bottom of the page, right? Um, so it did what we've been doing for thousands of years, well, at least uh, since the 1100s with, you know, uh, balance sheets, right, which were invented then, and thousands of years of basic accounting was suddenly made a lot easier. Now, what we're finding is AI tools are, the things that make stuff that we've taken hours to do a lot simpler, it's being effective. Is it projecting things that are terribly different? So one of the assumptions is if if we had an all-knowing, all-encompassing AI platform, then we wouldn't have to do anything. It would do everything. But that's not the platforms we have at the moment. And and one of the my, my own experience of working with different AI-driven platforms is, is you have to remember that having uh, a totally sentient being, right, doesn't really exist yet. What we have is platforms that can do certain things, right, that can do certain things. Now, whether, you know, Elon Musk and other people are projecting we will have real AI next year or 10 years from now or whatever, who knows, but um, but it is making a difference. It's it, In certain areas, it's speeding up. It's, a ma- it's allowing us to aggregate massive amounts of information. There's an AI platform that I use for market research, for example, and what it does is quite simple. Let's say I want to find out what the world thinks of Todd Embley. I pump in your name into that platform. I say, look at everything on the internet right, that has ever mentioned your name, and it downloads, it reads everything, it analyzes all that content, aggregates it, and tell me what, tells me what are emotions are generated by Todd Embley, right? Now, I haven't done that, so don't get worried. Um, but if you think about it, you know, if you're entering a marketplace and you want to know, you know, in Thailand, what's the marketplace think about X, now, I can go off and do tons of research. I can do focus groups and surveys, and I can do, read all the documents I can find. This thing literally in an hour or two will look at look at and read every single piece of content on the internet in Thai that mentions that subject and tell you what are the emotions generated by it, what's the, mess, what's the core narrative around it, yeah. right? So it's a, it's a big time saver if you like. Yeah. You know, I think, I, I think that's what we need is, is, you know, sentiment analysis for dating. Um, and, uh, you know, wake up every day and we get, a <laughs> we get a little, we get a little score on the sentiment of our partner towards us that day, you know, a little forewarning sometimes, uh, something to work towards. <laughs> yeah. That, that may be the next step that we'll, we'll try that. Next yeah, year. that's yeah. right. Dave, uh, thank you so much for, for coming back. We've never had, uh, a triple episode with anybody. In three years and 160 episodes, we've never done a triple. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming back. Um, 
we have, you know, we got, we got two, two, two parts of an episode out of the, the first long conversation that we had. There was just so much more to talk about and so many more things that I was inspired to talk about. So here we go. We got you, you know, uh, got you back a week later and, and having another conversation. Um, I hope everybody appreciated that we, we kind of came back and tied up some loose ends on this one. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but, but Dave, uh, thanks very much for, for coming back on again and wish you and yours, you know, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. And, um, you know, these, uh, you know, we, we hope for better things in 2023. Same to you, Todd. Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me again. As usual, for everybody who's watching us on, on YouTube out there, don't forget that we have the podcast. It's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, everywhere that you get your podcast. It's out there. And for those of you listening to us on the audio-only versions, don't forget that we do have the video uh, version over at uh, the WPIC um, and Negotiation uh, YouTube channel. So from all of us at the Negotiation and WPIC Marketing and Technologies, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.